Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at stchangehappen.co.uk. That's stchangehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 80, with the title Beyond the Barriers. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Belinda Riley. Belinda describes herself as a diversity and inclusion consultant, and also clinical hypnotherapist. When I asked Belinda to describe her superpower, she said that she truly cares and wants to get it right. Not just feel like she's right, whilst also recognising her own privileges and using those to help others. Hello, Belinda. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joanne. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to see you again. Yes, it's great to catch up. Belinda, tell me. We're speaking in the green room just before we went live and we talk about beyond the barriers. What does that mean to you? So beyond the barriers for me means a number of different things. And, you know, in my work, I also do a number of different things. But in essence, it's about going beyond the barriers of either limiting beliefs that people have that hold them back from really uh, achieving their potential or thriving, you know, in all areas of their life. Um, but it's also in my consultancy work, it's around going beyond the barriers of inequality to make workplaces work for everyone. So limiting beliefs, yeah, that, that, that's, um, I, I think when we first met probably about four or five years ago, I was probably going through a stage of my life where this sense of imposter syndrome, these limiting beliefs, these things hold you back. This, this little voice in your ear that says you can't you can't you can't and many people suffer from that don't they oh absolutely and uh, i'm fascinated actually about how imposter syndrome uh shows up for people and you know i've done a lot of work in this area and you know there's lots of research in this space um and i think the research says that kind of 70 percent of women experience imposter syndrome 40 percent of men you know in my work what i've kind of come across is realizing that most people experience some form of imposter syndrome or have some kind of imposter feelings that does hold them back. And, you know, often, you know, imposter syndrome can show up in loads of different ways of that idea of not feeling good enough, not feeling worthy enough, feeling like, you know, that you don't belong or that you're a fraud and someone's going to find out that you don't, you, you know, you don't really know as much as what, uh, what, what you say or, or that aligns with, uh, with what you're doing. But, you know, for me, more importantly, when I've looked closely into po- imposter syndrome is seeing how much is being left on the table. You know, how many great ideas, how much innovation, how many opportunities, how many ideas are people not following through because of those imposter feelings and those limiting beliefs and those words that they tell themselves And, you know, it's inspired me to really think more broadly around that. And how do I build awareness and kind of empower people to overcome those uh, imposter feelings so that they can go on and achieve and thrive and realise and fulfil their potential? So you said just now that 
proportionally more women experience it than men. Uh, and I also believe that it's, it's kind of people from marginalised minority or unheard voices backgrounds tend to be more. And that, is that down to socialisation more than anything, or is that just uh, nurture? Is it nurturing basically? Well, what I've kind of discovered in the work that I have done is that I believe that imposter syndrome is actually compounded by the systemic uh, barriers or the systemic inequality that exists in the world and in particular in the workplace. Um, And I think often when people are talking about imposter syndrome, it's kind of saying that something's wrong with you as an individual for having these feelings. But often it's not explored within the context of the worlds of which we we live and the worlds in which we work. And I think that that's why often, you know, in my experience and what I see, these imposter feelings are compounded for, for women and other sort of marginalised or underrepresented groups. And I think there's a reason for that. And I've looked really closely because I think when I started looking at imposter syndrome, you know, I remember when I moved from my career in the public sector into the private sector, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm not going to fit. You know, they've employed the wrong person. Um, You know, I'm going to get there and they're going to go, you know, thanks so much for coming, Belinda. Um, But, you know, we've made, made the wrong decision because I thought based on my ideas about, you know, the workplace that I didn't really have a role. But what I realized quite quickly when I, you know, started this new job is that I wasn't the only person who was experiencing these imposter feelings or this imposter syndrome. And, you know, people who I was looking up to who were who were and are absolutely phenomenal, you know, leaders of businesses, you know, entrepreneurs. I had the privilege in my role of working with, you know, royalty, with uh, Olympic champions, Paralympic champions, world champions in athletes. And I couldn't believe that there was some similarity in around the some of these imposter feelings and it really triggered in me you know where do these feelings come from why do people think they're not good enough even when you've kind of achieved what most people would you know only dream of achieving and where does that come from so i started kind of doing a little bit of inquiry and uh, you know as you mentioned at the beginning of uh, of our conversation i'm also a hypnotherapist um and really interested in how sort of the mind works and you know the role of the uh, and the rules of the mind and the power of the mind um, and i also had the privilege of studying with a phenomenal woman called marissa peer i don't know if you've come across her before, but she's a um, phenomenal therapist. Uh, she she coined um, rapid transformational therapy. And she was saying that in her kind of 35 years of being a hypnotherapist, a therapist, and she use, uses a number of uh, different types of therapies, is that she identified that there was kind of three limiting beliefs that there's no boundaries to. This idea that you're not enough, that uh, when you look up what you want isn't available to you, or this idea that you don't fit or you don't belong. And so when I was sort of re-upskilling with her, I looked into that and was thinking about that in the context of the workplace and in the context of the work that I was doing around diversity, inclusion and inequality. Um, And my role was really, you know, looking to, you know, advance um, minorities or marginalised groups into, into leadership roles. You know, it really got me thinking about those three factors and how does that actually show up in the workplace? And what I realized is that, you know, when I was looking at, you know, in particular women and other marginalized groups, you know, we're constantly held to 
a kind of masculine standard around what is success. And we're often told that we need to work harder, you know, that we need to do more to be successful, you know, and there's often this ingrained belief in workplaces that we operate a meritocracy, that if you work hard, you will progress at the same rate as your peers. But the reality is that's not true. But the systems are designed to support that process. But then when I looked a little bit deeper as well, you know, when you look up, it's not available to me. Well, when you look into companies and you look in businesses and you look in, you know, who is in those seat in your leadership, you know, for again, women and marginalized groups, you know, there's not that many people that look like you or sound like you. And then often, again, the same communities, when they're walking into a room and they look around, you know, there is again, only few people that necessarily look like you. So when we come back to this idea of I don't belong or I'm not enough or I don't fit, that is kind of or I'm a fraud or people are going to find out I don't belong, you can kind of see that those limiting beliefs that we have are compounded every day to reinforce this idea that what you're seeing is actually true um, because the world is telling you um, and reinforcing some of those th- some of those thought processes. Yeah, I, I love that. There's you break the three down and I, I always think that there's the old adage and you can't be what you you can't see and not fitting walking into a room being the only one or, or or seeing other people who are like you not succeeding as well as other people are it, it creates that limiting belief I agree, I agree completely and and I, I think you're also right about this perception of how you've got to be superhuman sometimes I, I can't show weakness I can't show failure and as a woman, we end up having to juggle multiple um, home tasks and work tasks and childcare tasks. Even in the most modern relationships, there's still that 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 unbalanced burden, if you like, in 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 many in many families. So, trying to trying to be superhuman to do everything, or feeling like you're letting someone down if you can't do everything, is a is a massive challenge as well, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think we put ourselves sometimes under so much pressure that it kind of reinforces this idea of if I if I make a mistake or if I can't do everything that I said I'm going to do or that I, I fail at something, that there's something wrong with me, um, that I'm not good enough. And almost it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy um, around this not enough feelings. And, you know, we often kind of, you know, the words that we tell ourselves, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, is that the words we also tell ourselves are the most important words. Um, And, you know, often we have such a strong inner critic, you know, we're very good at internalizing the negative. And I just wish that we were just as good at internalizing the positives, our successes and the things that we do well. Um, and, you know, and I think that if we're able to do that, we could start to kind of overcome some of those, some of those limiting beliefs. Yeah. I mean, you've probably heard of the phrase, fake it till you make it. Yeah. And I, I, sometimes it depends on how you say it and how you think about it, because it can be a kind, of, a kind of a negative term. But I also think it's your definition of faking, because imposter syndrome is almost telling you that everything you're good at is fake. So sometimes you've just got to keep on believing in yourself that that faking until you make it is not actually, you're not actually being fake. You're just being really, really hard on yourself and you are good at what you can do. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. I think that, you know, in the work that I've been doing as a hypnotherapist and again, studying with Marissa Peer is understanding how the mind works. And there's what's called these rules of the mind. And this is where this idea of kind of faking it till you make it almost comes through. But let me give you kind of a a new way of kind of reframing that is that when we actually understand how our mind works, we can actually work with our mind rather than against it. Because the mind doesn't actually distinguish between what is real or what it's fake. You know, what is fact, what is fiction? It's actually just listening and responding to the words that you tell it. So the whole idea that, you know, you might not believe that you are talented at something, but if you tell yourself enough, then your mind will actually respond to the words that you're saying it. So, you know, if we keep, our minds are designed to keep us safe in essence. And this goes back, and I, I know that uh, you've had lots of conversations with um, previous sort of guests around, around this idea, but our mind is designed to take us away from kind of keep us safe. And that also means that it takes us away from things that are perceived pain <laughs> towards what is perceived pleasure or, or safety. But when we know that we can work with our minds to tell it what we want it to be, so we can shift from I'm not good enough to I am enough, you know, through that consistency and that repetition, our mind starts to respond and believes what we tell it. And, you know, so often people talk about this whole idea of affirmations and, you know, um, people go, oh, get a bit icky about sometimes affirmations. But in essence, affirmations are just the words that we tell ourselves all the time. And if we go back to what we were saying before, so often the words that we tell ourselves are very negative. You know, I'm not good at that. No, I can't do that or I'm failing or that or, you know, people are going to laugh at me or judge me if I do those things. And they literally hold ourselves back. But if we start to tell ourselves a different narrative, because everything actually begins with a thought and we've got the power to control our thoughts and change our and change our thoughts and our thoughts, you know, everything starts with a thought that creates a feeling. And then that feeling kind of creates a behavior or an action that then kind of creates certain thoughts again. So coming back to that idea that you've got to fake it till you make it, actually, if you tell your mind something enough, it will start to believe it. And then your behaviors, you uh, start to align with that belief system. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I mean, I look, look back at my own journey of the last six years, and some, some of the early stages of that imposter syndrome, that limiting place really, really impacted me. And one thing I one thing I identified was that I didn't have any benchmark to, to, to know how I was doing. Um, I didn't have any positive reinforcement. I worked alone, like many of us do, with freelance or independent. Uh, so you've got, you haven't got colleagues around you saying so you can compare notes or, or even when they say, wow, you're doing amazing. You go, uh, my reaction was, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I down talk that, almost embarrassed to be, to be celebrated success. And I, I eventually overcame it by realizing that I was benchmarking against myself and the incremental change was almost undetectable. It's a continuum, that very micro changes I was improving. I could, and I had to start looking further back. So I had to start looking at myself a, a month ago or two months ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's when I started realizing that uh, I was improving. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that is that sometimes we forget where we started and that where we've come. And often when we start 
to change and develop and grow, sometimes that can feel very incremental. Uh, And as you said, unless we're kind of clear of where we started, and so often we don't, and often we fail to stop and celebrate our successes, our wins, some of the, you know, whether they're big wins or small wins, and actually seeing the progress. And often our limiting beliefs are based on experiences that we had years and years and years and years ago and aren't actually relevant or aligned to where we are now. Um, so the fact that you're able to see that, I think, is is phenomenal. And yeah. I think sometimes we do just need to check in with, you know, what is it that we've done? Where, you know, look back at see how far we've come, celebrate that, but also get clear about where we want where we want to go. What is it? What does success look like to us? And then what is the action we need to be taking to achieve that? Someone once said to me that it's a very British thing to be self-deprecating or or not taking credit for what we can do. Is it just a British thing or is it a, a, a world over trait? This is imposter syndrome. That's a very good question. Um, I was having this this exact same conversation with a German friend of mine um, only only a few days ago, um, and and I think that you know in my experience, and I've you know I've had the privilege of working with people you know across cultures you know around around the world. I think it's I think the term imposter syndrome is one thing, but I think the what's sort of equivalent to the imposter feelings, I think, are fairly universal. I think it's just about how you describe it. So, yes, I think the British do regularly say, and I'm an Australian, um, and, uh, you know, and we, and I, I was trying to think about, you know, are we self-deprecating in the same way that uh, that British people are? But I've been in Britain for so long, for 20 years, I can't quite distinguish what's, what's different. But, no, I do think that it's different interpretations um, of, of, of how you would describe imposter syndrome. But I do feel that when we're looking at kind of more broadly limiting beliefs, I feel that most people have them. And often those limiting beliefs stem all the way back into childhood. Um, and, you know, it's about our interpretation. So, you know, you and I could have experienced, you know, very similar things or different things, but our limiting beliefs come from our interpretation of those events. And then every time we're in a situation where those feelings are triggered again, it kind of compounds those feelings of not being enough or those compounding those feelings of of imposter syndrome. So you, you said at the beginning that you, well, I introduced you as a, a, a diversity inclusion consultant. And one of the things that I always find when I speak to people is that one of the biggest challenges they have is overcoming this fear of getting it wrong. So everyone's worried about upsetting somebody to the point where they'd rather disengage than engage. So how do you get people comfortable having uncomfortable conversations or feeling uncomfortable, if you like, around these these kind of conversations that are out of their depth mm-hmm. whilst giving them a safe space? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I think it's realising that you're not alone. You know, and, uh, you know, every, you know, most people are more worried about themselves than they are worried about the other person and what you think about them. And I think there's something quite freeing in that. Um, you know, again, only the other day I was talking to, to a, a, an old colleague and they're like, oh my God, I said that. And I was like, my goodness, nobody would have even noticed that. But what you felt where you'd made a stumble or you'd, you'd done something wrong that you really noticed, nobody else 
even notice that. So I think also, you know, we're very, very harsh on ourselves. And I think sometimes we've just got to kind of let some of that go. I think that also, you know, we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable and, you know, creating space and kind of almost that psychological safety for people to be able to talk about issues and talk about different experiences because otherwise, you know, if we're not out there learning and building awareness and breaking down some of these barriers, nothing ever changes, you know, and I regularly and, you know, I do a lot of work with leaders and a lot of leaders feel and say to me, you know, but what happens if I say the wrong thing? And it's like, you know, but, yeah, you might say the wrong thing. Um, But also, you know, what is your intention? Actually, you often are speaking louder by not saying anything at all. Um, And, you know, and I know in talking to lots of people, you know, the fact that people are willing to have that conversation and open to learning and opening to making a mistake is far more engaging than feeling like you're not being seen, heard, or even being given the opportunity to, to have a voice. Yeah. We, we do see countless examples, though, in the media where someone's made a slip up and they get berated for it. I mean, the recent example of the uh, the lady in waiting to our our former queen or our deceased queen, to having a conversation to a charity, a black person who's a charity worker, and how that conversation went around where you're from. So people see that and they either go, oh, that makes me really nervous, or they, they, the opposite reaction is they, they get kind of defensive about this political correctness and wokeness in society, and uh, and you can't say anything these days without someone jumping on you. So how do, how do we kind of have those conversations where we're we're helping people through that? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think the social media has made life quite challenging for people, but also I think in that example there was a real lack of awareness, and I think that you know when people do make mistakes, and you know what was said. Was, was, wasn't was appropriate. And I think that they weren't being aware of the impact of that constant questioning about, but no, where are you really from? Where are you really from? And the impact that that has. I think that, you know, for me, we have a responsibility to educate ourselves and to learn and to use those kind of moments around how do we actually reflect and what is the impact that that has on other people's lived experiences. And I think that, you know, for me, where I see a real issue is when people aren't open to that learning. You know, and we talked at the beginning about privilege and it is about recognising that we have got certain privileges, um, but also it's around, you know, there's a great quote that I often use um, in my work, and I better make sure I get it right. It's a Stephen Covey, Covey quote, is that, you know, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. And I think that, you know, for me, that's really important that we start from a place of acknowledging that and then being open to learning um, to make sure that, you know, we do continue to evolve. I think it is, it's difficult, though, I think, because a lot of people are persecuted for saying, you know, the wrong thing. Um, but I also think that, you know, it's about sometimes it's about the intent Um, And it's also recognising, you know, the barriers that certain people do face every every day. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was a classic example of that, of not recognising and not being aware of and not, um, yeah, I suppose almost reinforcing an issue. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I agree that most most people are, are by definition good at heart. Most people want to do well in the world. They wake up with positive intent. Uh, as 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 you as we discussed, the intent doesn't always cover the impact. You know, we, we have negative impact, and it's it, how, how do we, we 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 slip up? How do we recover that if we realise we've created a negative impact or a problematic impact? Yeah. Well, I think it's also about acknowledging it. It's not denying that it happened. I think that, you know, we have to get comfortable owning our mistakes and acknowledging it. So acknowledging the mistake, you know, apologizing for it, learning from it, but also then we need to be able to to move on. And I think that, you know, often we don't do that. And I see that. And I think actually one of the biggest barriers to, you know, the work that, you you know, I know both you and I are very passionate around, you know, advancing equality in, in the workplace is the denial of the inequality that exists and people not taking responsibility for um for making making changes you know in you know there is enough information out there you know for us to you know just because you haven't experienced something or you haven't seen it or it hasn't affected you it certainly doesn't mean that it hasn't happened and I think we need you know that for me is one of our greatest privileges is being able to use that privilege to break down some of those barriers and using your voice and using your power and influence to you know to start driving change you know, I often see, especially through this lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, is that we're asking minority groups to fix the problem. It is not their job to fix the problem of inequality. Um, so, again, it comes back to, for me, that education piece, but we also need to ensure that we're able to acknowledge when we have made a mistake and what we're actually going to do about that. Yeah, it, it's, it's so true. We, we can't, black people can't fix racism. No. Women can't fix sexism, et cetera, et cetera. But what we often find is in our DEI space when we're having these conversations, it becomes an echo chamber. Yeah. It, becomes an echo cha- it becomes an echo chamber of um, just within that community. So black people talk about the challenges or black, brown, people of colour talk about the challenges they face, but white people aren't listening. So how do, how do we get everybody in the room, you know, through allyship, but how do we, how do we persuade people who are not part of those minority groups to engage and learn more about about the challenges, the injustices, as you said. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that you know, there's a number of things. I mean, for me, it is around understanding, you know, creating space and opportunities to build awareness and understanding. You know, there is so much information out there, and it's about you know how do people connect on a personal level. I think, as I said before, you know, we have people have a responsibility to educate themselves um, and to take action and to for people to be aware of, you know, how they can leverage their power. Well, first of all, that they have got, um, you know, power and in and influence. I think that there's also an opportunity in terms of ensuring that we're listening to people's lived experiences and creating that space to listen to people's lived experiences. And I think coming back to that privilege is it's not always somebody's fault, but it is about recognising that it exists. And I think I mentioned before, you know, one of the biggest barriers is the denial 
that inequality exists in the first place. So how do we ensure? And I think that what I've seen is that everybody connects in different ways. You know, so how do you create those aha moments for people um, that they can connect with. I think that what I've often seen is that sometimes the the messaging around diversity and, and, and equity and inclusion creates this zero-sum game. Like to advance inequality means that other people need to miss out. And that's a real misconception. You know, everybody stands to, to gain. And I think for companies in particular, you know, there is so much out there that shows that companies who get this right are at a competitive advantage. You know, so sometimes it's about how do we ensure that people understand this in the right way around what some of the benefits are. You know, there is a very, you know, I often say there's no business case for the for the status quo, but I always say, well, tell me the business case. And, you know, I do find that a little bit frustrating, but actually there's enough information out there that demonstrates the business case as well as the human case, but recognising again that everybody stands to gain from getting this right but i'd love to hear from you how how are you experiencing this because it is a it is a challenge it is and i i, I have my own marginalized characteristic and as a, mm-hmm. as a trans woman um I, like most people you've probably is recording this in february 2023 there's a lot of anti-trans rhetoric caused through the scottish gender recognition reform bill um talking about this as transgender prisoners who have, have been convicted of rape. There's a whole load of uh, rhetoric around think about the women and children with damaging ac- access and all this focus on, 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 on trans women. So it is, you know, I'm well aware of the noise and this pervasive sort of like kind of drone in the air that I and other trans people feel and it affects, you know, we talked to use the word earlier, psychological safety. It means I'm constantly on a state of awareness and stress and anxiety in certain situations. So, and it's really hard to, I think, as you said, you talk about the zero-sum game. I'm not trying to steal anybody's space. I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody. All I'm saying is, can I exist in the world? And you don't have, you're not losing. There's nothing to lose here. If If there are bad people, there are bad people. There are bad people in all walks of life, and Absolutely. just because you're transgender doesn't mean to say you're a bad person. So it's 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 it's, it's trying to what we, what we, what we, the effect is we, we dehumanize, and once you dehumanize, mm-hmm. it gives it gives society permission to treat you any way any way it likes for their imp- impunity. So I think what's happening is the moment we see it through time. I was speaking to a lady yesterday around uh, the dehumanization of, of Arabs and Muslims. Mm-hmm. We saw around the dehumanization of, of the Japanese people in America after Pearl Harbor. We saw in the Second World War uh, and the Nazis around uh, people who are Jewish. We, so we see these dehumanizing words. And we're seeing now the worrying thing is we see the rise of the incel movement, the Andrew Tate, the toxic masculinity dehumanizing women as such as becoming property so i think as much as we're pushing forward we're having to hold our own at some point because otherwise if we don't hold we're sliding backwards in some of these areas yeah absolutely and i think you know at the heart of all of this it is about being human and i think there is a real reminder and whilst i think when we look at what people experience and as you've just explained you know I don't think there's anybody in the world who has not felt at some point in their life what it feels like to be excluded or to be rejected. 
just some people only have to experience this occasionally. And, you know, often when I go into companies to work with them to to really kind of help people connect with what we're trying to do and the goal is helping people to connect with that. You, What does it feel like? Close your, I sometimes do these visualisation exercises. Just close your eyes for a minute and imagine, you know, what does it like walking in and the only person, you, you open up your eyes and you're the only person that looks like you in the room. Remember that time when you, you know, you weren't picked at, school to go to a party or you weren't invited to a party or that you weren't chosen to be on a sports team, you know, being rejected from a date, you ask somebody out and they say no, you know, all of these feelings are kind of universal, those feelings of not fitting in, you know, and it comes back to what I was saying before, not feeling worthy, not feeling enough. And then it's, you know, for me, when, when people can connect with that, imagine feeling like that every day, that every day you step out of your your house, you know, and you know, as women, we we have different thought processes to men because of safety, you know. Every day, you know, and I have these conversations regularly. Do you even think about what it feels like to have to think? Right, am I going to be coming home late tonight when it's dark? Am I safe to do that? Can I get transport? How am I going to get home? You know, does anybody even know where I am? For example, you know, and I know that that happens for women and, uh, you know, for black boys in particular as well out in the community because of these stereotypes. But when, you know, when people can actually connect, I think sometimes to some of those human behaviours and make a connection, then that for me sometimes is a trigger to get thinking, people thinking in a, in a different in a different way. Mm. It was certainly something I had not foreseen when I transitioned six, seven years ago the we as we grow up we learn these social constructs we learn our behavior model we learn all these things and what i hadn't appreciated was the the need to unlearn to allow me to relearn and i experienced some safety issues that completely came from left field i had no idea this was going to happen i was so unprepared fortunately no, nothing nothing terrible happened but it it was like a real jolt i went I can't do this anymore without thinking. I have to plan this. I have to be aware of this. I need to check that someone is, is watching me in case this goes wrong. I'm not alone here. I've got support if I need it in a bar or wherever that may be. And it, it's it was a really, really well, scary, enlightening, but also a wake-up call around my own privileges that I had that I hadn't even thought about. And I, now I erase those privileges and I suddenly had this new feeling and and it, I mean, the number of stories. I, mean, I was at a, I was at a dinner a couple of weeks ago with two other two other women. We're sitting having a conversation. They both looked at their watch at a certain point. And went, we better be going home soon. I don't want to get that last tube. I don't want to get that last train. I want to make sure I go now. I don't want to have to get my keys out and hold them between my fingers. I thought this isn't conversations. I, this is normal conversations that women have around the table at that time of night. That again, I was cuddling, going, "You're right." Yes, you're right. I hadn't, I hadn't, I'm still trading off that old privilege. Yeah. And, you know, and often people don't necessarily realize, well, what's the impact of that? Hmm. You know, what is the emotional load with coming, with having to think about elements of your identity each and every day? You know, we hmm. talk a lot, don't we, around, you know, health, well-being, mental health. You know, these thoughts, as you've just described as well, is, you know, that can have quite a profound 
impact on people and you think about your kind of working memory if you know a percentage of your time and energy is thinking about this you know what is the impact that that has in other areas of your life and if we connect that to the workplace you know how does that impact productivity um you know in the workplace if people are already having to think about all of those things before they even start the day so again coming back to you know there's you know companies and businesses need to think about that because you know there's so much again being left on the table because people are worrying about things that because they can't be their authentic selves because that's not what fits or what what belongs and um you know again there's something that everybody can gain by creating a place where people can turn up and be themselves that there's you know, modifications to create the right environment for people to thrive. Now, that's for me around, you know, there's a great image, and I'm sure you've seen it before, that describes equality versus equity where you see people on bikes. You know, we we don't, we shouldn't be treating everybody the same because that's not recognising or understanding some of the barriers or modifications that people need to be able to get on the right size bike so that they can get to, to the finish line. Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, is it the, uh, is it, I think it was JFK, rising water floats all boats evenly. So what we have to recognise is we need to add enough water so that we're, we are floating everybody. But it starts at the lowest boats first and then raises to the highest boats. So we, that's recognising that people need this equity. They need to, we need to invest in people, understand that the barriers, the additional challenges of being them. And I, I think you're right when you're talking about this uh, this extra load it's a cognitive load. And I, uh, my background in IT, I used to be a programmer many, many years ago. And I, th- I always think about these little things, the little subroutines in my head. So am I safe? Am I going to be disrespected? Is someone going to misgender me? Is this going to happen? So all these little things are firing off before I can actually do any next the proper thinking. Yeah. it's I've almost got this extra burden every time. I'm going tick, 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 tick. Yeah, good. Right, carry on. And that could be limiting beliefs. It could be all this other stuff in there, all part of this load. I and others have to consider through lack of privilege or whatever it may be that other others may not have to. I mean, they may, maybe they have their own subroutines, their own challenges, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, I feel that cognitive load there now. Yeah. And that's really powerful. And I think there's also things that we can do to take some of that away, you know, for people, you know, what can we do? We shouldn't be adding to that by, you know, constantly having to either fix the problem or, um, you know, fixing different things within within workplaces. You know, I think that, you know, those in positions of power and influence don't, I think, realise that they can do things differently to alleviate some of that emotional load or even just recognising that that's what people experience um, every day in certain areas. And uh, being the only one in a room is should not be underestimated how what a load that is because in one respect you're representing everybody who's like you you you're you're the conversations are harder you're looking out for microaggressions or discriminatory comments or or being or, or, or those challenges and you're worried about your personal safety you're worried about a whole load of factors going on psychological safety and I think a lot of workplaces have are set up. So there are, there are many places where you are the only one. So if you're a young black woman trying to succeed and go into leadership roles, there are many role models in there. So what can organizations do around coaching and mentoring and support programs? It's equity we talked about, isn't it? It's about equity. 
Yeah. I mean, something that I'm really passionate about and have been doing a lot of work and have been seeing quite phenomenal impact is sponsorship programs. Um, And the reason why I think sponsorship is probably one of the most influential factors in kind of advancing um, inequality or advancing equality in, in the workplace is it shifts the responsibility around who's kind of accountable for change. So, you know, traditionally, and I think this is done with really great intention, we have all of these programs that focus on the minority, you know, whether that's women, with it, whether it's ethnic minorities, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think unintentionally, it's also the message is, is we're trying to fix people to fit into an environment where they don't fit. But actually, if we shift that towards, well, actually, what can we do to actually enable because people don't need fixing they just need the right environment for them to thrive and that might be different to what certain people need but when we talk about people who are individuals and looking at what people individually need then we're going to have far greater success and you know what we've discovered or what I've discovered through sort of different parts of work that I've done is that you know often people have access to sponsorship informally by those who are in the majority. You know, we all have affinity bias, every single one of us. We have a very much human behavior. And in essence, affinity bias is is that we like to surround ourselves with people that are similar to us or that we can connect on. And I think that dates right back to tribal times, that if you're a part of a tribe, you're part of a community, you were safer. And if you stepped outside of that, you were at risk. You know, the thing is, is we're not back there. We're not in the same place anymore. But also that kind of idea of being around people who are like us does make us feel broadly uh, safer. And as a result of that, and as a result of people who are in the majority, those who are like that get access to whether that be networks, whether that's opportunities, whether that's information, and that creates huge amounts of advantages um, and opportunities for those. So, When we're looking at kind of formal sponsorship programs, when you can help especially leaders in business understand the barriers that people face and how that is compounded when you apply intersectional lenses and once they recognise that but they can actually do something to support those people by giving them access to influential networks, you know, information, opening doors, creating visibility, um, it can lead to huge differences for those for those people but for me that's around really active visible and accountable sponsorship now what I've also seen is a lot of people think that they're sponsoring others but they're not they're mentoring them Um, and you know the difference you know for me is sponsorship is about how you use your influence for others you know mentoring is about sharing information but it's really about what you do when somebody's not in the room so you know if people are really looking at ways to advance um sort of representation or diversity in workplaces you know my top tip often is around look at your sponsorship programs look at formal sponsorship programs let's look at the systems let's break down those barriers that exist let's challenge this belief of meritocracy um, and let's um, let's really make a difference. Yeah, the, the myth of meritocracy is 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 still powerful, isn't it? I, I've oh. I, I've I've been in a room full of recruiters, and and they all pipe up. Yes, but the best person gets the job, and I say using whose criteria? Um, and it's 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 about who designs the criteria, it designs the meritocracy, and the, the criteria is designed often with bias, own yeah. lens. 
own end stuff. You know, you're looking at yourself or I've got a Trevor and I want another Trevor. That's what we're saying, isn't it? And that, that's often how the meritocracy is designed, someone just like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, um, I, I borrowed, I leveraged this term called meritocracy um, that I came across because actually I think that what most companies do, um, again, unintentionally and unconsciously, is that they kind of employ, promote, develop people who look and sound like those who are currently in positions of power. And this term meritocracy was originally coined in Silicon Valley with a recognition that those in the tech industry, they weren't being employed based on their merit. They weren't being employed based on their skills. They were being employed based on who looked like those that were already there. And what that meant and the bigger impact is that they were missing out on the skills um, that actually were going to help them and enable the businesses. And I see that play out again and again in businesses at the moment. You know, and the other question I often challenge people is, well, why would someone want to come and work in your organisation? And I think that if you can answer that question, you know, that's what's going to attract people in. Do you actually value the uniqueness that people, that individuals bring? Do you create the space for people to have a voice? You know, because I often say, oh, yeah, yeah, we really value diversity. Equity, and it's really important to us. Well, show me, what does that actually look like for you? Why would a trans woman want to come and work in your business? You know, are they going to be set up for success? Um, and what are you going to do to enable them to be successful? What does that actually look like? And for me, they're some of the tough conversations we really need to have because, you know, when you start asking those questions, I'm not sure that everybody always has an answer. Um, and I think that, you know, going back to what we were talking about, about, you know, being, you know, unlearning or and then having to relearn is I think that there's a lot of that that needs to happen. But again, we need to create the space for them, for people to be able to do that, um, to think about you know, is how, how, how do we value people who are different and how, mm. we, how do we create the right environment for people to thrive? When we're, when we're trying to diversify, mm-hmm. uh, and I did some air quotes when I said diversify, yeah. diversify there. <laughs> people can't see, some nice air quotes. Are, 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 we in, are we in danger of creating a stereotype around the person we're trying to ha- hire? And I, what I mean by that is often when we say, why, why do we want to hire more women? And often we'll say, we need more empathy. We need more compassion. We need more more soft skills uh, into our teams. That's that's making the the quantum assumption that women have those skills more than other people, and that's creating a stereotype that women are naturally more emotional and compassionate, and that's saying that men can't be. So we're almost creating a reverse bias there to justify why we should hire more fairly. And I, and I think sometimes we get sucked up into these other stereotypes, um, and unfairly hiring women just because they're emotional and compassionate and have high EQ, supposedly. I suppose it well, actually, I think there is some research that supports, you know, some of those some of those statements. But I think more importantly is I think that it's redefining, you know, what are the skills that we actually need? And I think that, you know, both you know, and not putting people into these gendered stereotypes. But I think that, you know, because people, men can be 
very emotionally intelligent and can have empathy and there's other and there's women that don't have empathy so it shouldn't necessarily keep putting people into boxes it's about you know what are the skills that we need what does you know a leader look like in our business and who are the best people then to deliver on that and it goes back to your point is are we even clear around you know what are the skills and capabilities that we actually want and need for a business to thrive and I think that that has changed and I think that there's a recognition that there's certain skills that we need more of in the future world of work um, than, you know, than before. And I think that that is constantly evolving and changing as well. But I think that it shouldn't necessarily just be defined about a woman brings this or a man brings this or somebody from this community brings this. It's actually, you know, being clear on the skill set and then um, and then starting starting from there. Yeah, and also building trust as well, isn't it? If, if uh, I, I was uh, talking to somebody the other day, and what we're talking about here is, is diversity isn't about Noah's Ark. It's not having two of everybody or one of this or, or some of that. And we've got to have this matrix of, of different personalities and identities. It's around the people who we have trusting the people in leadership or the, the mission of the organisation to support them, recognize them, empower them, look after them, create their belonging, create their culture. So you, you may be the only one. I mean, I'm, I, I'm the only one often. Yes. But I, I, it doesn't worry me, provided I trust the environment I'm in to respect and look after me and not break me. Yeah. And that comes back to that psychological safety, isn't it? Is that, you know, if you go into an organization and everyone looks and sounds the same, you know, what you could determine from that is that they're not valuing difference. And it's not always about having to see a complete replica of yourself. But if there is people who are representative of different backgrounds, different, you know, whether it's socioeconomic background, different, you know, different educational backgrounds, different ages, you know, all those different elements, um, you know, people who are neurodivergent, if you've got people who are representative of difference, it shows that, well, my difference can be, you know, is more likely to be valued and accepted because we're being, you know, there, there appears to be because of what I'm seeing, people are there because of their uniqueness and the diversity of what they're bringing rather than, oh, there's four women, there's four of this and there's four of that. And I think that, you know, often people think that diversity or having certain diversity is fixing the problem of inequality. For me, diversity is an output of inclusion and belonging. Oh yeah, I, I I often talk about that where people focus on these diversity initiatives, yeah. diversity hiring. Let's go out hire more people, and I always say no, no. Hiring is the last thing you do, not the first thing you do, and it's about getting your culture right. If you get your culture right with your values and alignment, belonging occurs. If belonging occurs, inclusion occurs. If inclusion occurs, you will be more diverse because you're you're welcoming people. If you get the diversity right, you're going to be compliant. Because yeah. that you won't get things. So it all starts with culture, starts with belonging, starts with those values. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, again, this is where some of the messaging, you know, has been misconstrued almost is that, you know, but I've done this, I've hired that and it didn't work. And, you know, what, what frustrates me sometimes about that is, oh, no, but we put women into leadership roles, but they weren't successful. 
And it's like, well, did you look at why? Did we actually set people up for success? Just putting someone into any role. You're not going to put a doctor all of a sudden become a lawyer and expect them to thrive because they thrive somewhere else. You know, we have to really set people up for success. What support does somebody need to be successful in that role? And again, I think we, it comes back to the why. Why is this important? And understanding, you know, why why this hasn't been successful in the past. Um, and I think it's unpacking that. And I think that, you know, again, it comes back to, you know, do we understand the different lived experiences of people? And just because something worked for you, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work yeah. for others. It's this concept of uh, the concrete cliff, isn't it, where it's really hard to break through the glass ceiling. But what happens is you get there and you realise you don't like it. And you jump off the concrete cliff because it, it's, it's so toxic. You don't want to be there anymore. So it, it, it really is making sure that you are, as you say, providing that support, that, that nurturing, recognising the equity that needs to be pumped into this uh, circumstance. And, yeah, I mean, people might say, well, we don't need to do that with men. They just get on with it. Yeah, but that's not necessarily a fair representation because maybe these men have been nurtured already and they don't necessarily have all the skills. So maybe instead of instead of focusing on these man attributes, we look at adaptability, learning quotient, all these other things we talk about in the future. Mm-hmm. Recognizing the world of work in ten years' time is completely different to the world of work today. I mean, if you just look at look at what's happening with AI, um, Chat GPT at the moment, the world's going crazy around AI, image generation. Everyone's already talking about this AI taking over the world and so if we're now generating content and and products using ai where do all these other roles go so it's in the same paradigm shift as as deliveroo as uber as facebook as all these social media stuff we didn't have that 10 years ago now we have so we look at for 10 years the world of work is going to be phenomenally different this today and we need to hire people who are ready for that change Yeah. And, you know, I love that quote, you know, what got us here isn't what's going to get us there. And for me, that's about, you know, we have to keep evolving and responding. And we, you know, the the world is changing, as you said, it's so rapidly. Um, You know, if we look back what's happened in the last four to five years, probably the last time, you you know, you and I are in, in person together, how much has changed? you know, that we didn't foresee. And I think that, again, this is about how can we be agile? How can we be flexible? How do we adapt um, to these changes? And, you know, I always try and look for some of the the positives. And, you know, I mean, COVID was pretty um, horrendous for for most people. And again, I think there was some, some good things from that. And there was, you know, some things that, you know, we really struggled with. And I know for me, not being able to see my family back in Australia was really difficult. But, you know, when I come back to thinking about COVID within the context of working, of the working world, you know, it busted so many myths about the way we used to work that I think kind of reinforced and prevented us from really shifting the dial when it came to, and you know, inclusion and belonging perspective. Because, you know, I used to always get told, oh, Belinda, people have to be in the office. People have to be on client sites. Well, actually, in the firm I used to work with, we managed to mobilize over 300,000 people within a week and technology has ena- enabled that to happen and still able to, de- you know, deliver solutions for clients, still able to team to still be able to collaborate and still be able to be successful so you know with I you know it's always about for me how do we reimagine what else can we do what can we learn 
to, to, to keep moving forward. Um, and I think there's some huge opportunities that came out of that. And I don't think we've quite landed on, you know, what that looks like going forward. And I know lots of people and, and companies are struggling with that. But I think it also opened up a huge talent pool um, because there was a lot of people who weren't able to participate within the workforce because of that needing to be present, you know, whether or not that was around, you know, getting into, you know, into the cities, how expensive that is, you know, with people with caring responsibilities, people with disabilities, you know, or a number of different reasons that may have prevented people that has now opened up. And I think for a lot of companies, the biggest challenges that they have at the moment is winning the war on talent. Well, there's a lot of great talent out there. How do we think differently so that, you know, you're the one that gets access to that talent? And talent is more empowered, more enlightened. Talent talent knows different now. Talent knows it can work from home. Um, and I often wonder what, what the motivation what motivation is driving some of these some of the big businesses. I know the government are worried about the, the the rail infrastructure, the underground infrastructure, not having enough people to keep it viable. We've got dead in the cities, coffee bars, cafes, all this economy closing down. So there's an immense pressure to get people back to the office just for the economies in that area without necessarily thinking about the benefit to people. And I think when I hear people talking about you know, big global leaders talking about we need to get people back in the office because it means creativity, mentoring, learning of each other, co- coffee machine, co- water cooler chats. And I think, okay, I get, I get that. There is some power and some benefit of having face-to-face contact. I value it as well. But for me, when the answer to every question is back in the office, that's where it falls over. The answer to every question is, what can we do in this particular case? And I I think we need to recognize that back in the office is not the only answer or the default answer to everything. So it's about being more innovative, local hubs, work, work, work clubs, that kind of stuff in local businesses. Yeah, I used to always laugh that often we're in the office and everybody's at their computer with the headphones on, you know, so you can kind of do that from anywhere. So I think it's just about being creative and and imaginative around how do we use certain spaces, you know, and do you come in for those collaborative days or those days for for teaming and then do you have those meetings structured in a different way? I mean, to be honest, I don't have all the answers, but I do think there's an opportunity to really think through different things that creates more opportunity for more people to participate. And when we look at, you know, generations, and I think this is the first time in history, isn't it, that we have five generations in the workforce at one time, you know, all with differing needs, all with differing expectations. Um, and so how do we how do we manage some of that? Yeah. Um, but if we don't, we are also missing, and again, it comes back right back to what I was saying at the beginning, is about how much is left on the table by not creating the right environment for people people to thrive. Um, and, you know, when we look at, you know, the, the new generations coming through, you know, they're very clear that they will not work in an organization or a company that does not value them for who they are. Um, and they're demanding. I think the latest research is 80 percent of um, this community want inclusion. And if they get somewhere and people aren't delivering on their promises, they're off. You know, they're not going to stay. And, you know, that's a hugely expensive exercise for for companies. So, you know, there's a real opportunity for people to get this right that benefits everybody. Fantastic. That's an, that's an awesome place that we can close this down and and and, uh, and draw a line there. That was immensely inspiring, that last uh, that last. Uh, words you said there so belinda it's been an absolute pleasure so how can uh, our audience get in touch with you what's the best way to to connect 
Uh, so the best way probably to connect with me is either through LinkedIn um, is a great way. And often people connect with me there either via email. So that's Belinda at Belinda-Riley.com. Uh, people can find me there. Um, I'm also on Instagram, which is at Belinda underscore Riley. And I'm just in the process of designing and developing a new app. Um, so when that comes out, uh, it's going to be called Beyond the Barriers. So that's a, that's a nice little connection to, to our, our conversation. So I think you just type that into the app store um, at some point soon. Um, and you can find me there as well. Fantastic. Thank you once again. Well, thank and you. Thank so you. Yeah. And thank you to all the listeners. Um, thank you for listening this far, tuning in. Um, please do subscribe. You'll be notified of future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. If you haven't already shared it with your friends and colleagues, then please do. Uh, I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks and months. Of course, if you'd like to be a guest yourself, please let me know. Uh, just drop me an email.